That was beautiful. Thank you, choir. It's a beautiful way of pointing us and focusing us and reminding us that Christ is truly, truly a beautiful, wonderful Savior. Let us pray. Holy and gracious Father, we thank and praise you for the salvation that is ours in Christ. Oh Lord, speak this truth over and over and over again. Give us joy to know that. Give us joy knowing that, that Christ is at the right hand of the Father, that he comes down to us in the sacrament, that he opens Scripture, that all of Scripture is about him. Help us, Lord, to know this great truth. Open our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Some of you might know this. I know not all of you do. But my great-grandfather was a pastor in a Church of God church down in Fallbrook. And then when he retired, he moved up to Grass Valley. Well, my dad tells a story about my great-grandpa. He was up there for the summer visiting him. And my great-grandfather every day would sit underneath a tree and read the Bible. He's a retired pastor. My dad knew that my great-grandfather had read through the Bible many of times. And so my dad, as a young a boy, almost a young man, asked him, why do you keep reading the Bible? You've read it tons of times. Why do you keep reading it? And my great-grandfather told him, he said, Bobby, my dad's Robert, Bobby, he said, every time I read Scripture, I learn something new. And so I read it every day because God always has a word for me, a new word that I have I've missed. My dad remembered those words. He shared those with me. And I share these with you because in our reading from Luke, there's a phrase that jumped out at me this week. As we learn about the ascension of Christ, there's, there's a, a phrase that I'd never seen before. Even though I'd read it, I preached on this passage, I'd never seen this verse. In verse 52, it says, this phrase, I mean, Then they worshipped Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They worshiped Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now that phrase, great joy, I, I've never actually seen, I've never focused on, i never thought about it. I don't know if you know this, but throughout the Gospel of John, there are four occasions for the kind of joy that you'd call great joy. The first is the announcement of Jesus' birth. It said, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great, of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you or for you. He is Christ the Lord. So that's the first occasion for joy. The second occasion for joy was when the 72 had gone out and done their mission. And they had spread the gospel, or they had done the mission, and they came back. And it said that they rejoiced. They had great joy over the fact that even the demons obeyed them. So they had authority over the demons, which is pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, it'd be pretty nice to come back and go, wow, Jesus, look at all the things we did. And Jesus said to them, don't rejoice over those things. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. And then he goes on to say, he said to them, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So that's the second occasion for joy. The third occasion is Luke 15. 
the chapter of, of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, the lost son. And you remember Jesus' words that said, when, a, when a, sinner, a sinner repents, he said, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing, this great joy, in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So that's the third place for joy. And finally now, the ascension of Jesus is the final place where there's this great joy. Now the question we have to ask is, how in the world is Jesus' leaving his disciples, how can that bring great joy? Think about it. He's ascending to heaven. He won't be with his disciples in the way that they have known. How can that make them happy? How can that bring them great joy? I mean, if I could understand they'd have joy if Jesus was some kind of tyrant. If he was a wicked tyrant, yay, the wicked witch is gone. But he's not a wicked witch. He's not a tyrant. I can understand if Jesus was some taskmaster. You know, when the cat, when the cat is away, the mice will play. Is that how it goes? Yeah. When the cat's away, the mice will play. Or, you know, any teenagers. Hey, the parents are gone. Let's throw a party. <laughs> right? I mean, if, if Jesus was some parental figure, if Jesus was a hard taskmaster, then it'd be good for him to go. Let's have a party. But he's not a taskmaster. He's not a tyrant. So why, in, and these, these disciples aren't rebellious teenagers. So why in the world are they happy that he's ascended to heaven? I mean, there won't be a Jesus to clean up their mess. When the disciples are arguing with each other, there's no Jesus to say, knock it off. When there's a crowd that needs teaching, Jesus isn't going to be the one doing it. And when someone needs to be punished or nailed on the cross, you don't have Jesus volunteering. He's ascended to heaven. It's going to now fall on the disciples. And so how in the world, why in the world, will they rejoice, have great joy over the fact that Jesus has left? Well, I believe there are four reasons in our passage that tell us why or four reasons for the great joy. The first reason that they had great joy is because Jesus opened their eyes to the scriptures. Listen to verses 44 and 45. These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In other words, he opened their minds so that they would understand that the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, they were all written to point to Jesus. He opened their eyes so they could understand that Jesus really is the point of the scriptures that is meant to point to him. In fact, it's, it's when it got, like an example would be in Genesis 22, when God said to Abraham, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now when God said those words to Abraham, 
Who then would be his offspring to bless all the nations? Jesus. So when he's speaking, it's Jesus who's the offspring who blesses all the nations. Or then, let's say Isaiah. When Isaiah wrote, in Isaiah 42.1, he said, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Again, Isaiah is referring to Jesus. Jesus is the one who the Spirit comes upon him. Jesus is the one who will bring justice to the nations. Or in Psalm 113, when David wrote, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. Now, who is David writing about? Jesus. Jesus is the God who comes down to the ash heap, the dusty place, that trash place. He comes down to lift up the lowly, to seat them with princes, to seat them with himself. It's Jesus who reverses the fortunes. All these references of Scripture are meant to point to Jesus. And so for anyone who says, oh, I don't want to read the Old Testament because it's so gruesome, well, you're not looking for Jesus. Because I promise, when you look for Jesus in these passages, you see him, and it's beautiful. In fact, Martin Luther called the book of Genesis the fifth gospel. Why? Because on every page, on every verse, you see Jesus all throughout it. So read the, the, gospel, or read the gospel of Genesis. Look for Jesus. You'll find him. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus opened their minds so that they could see that. That's why, again, I read to you chapter 10 when it said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. People wanted to see what the secret of the scriptures were. They desired to. Kings and prophets wanted to see this. Probably, A, because they're curious, but there's a second reason. Why would a king, why would a prophet want to know the secrets of God? Power, absolutely. Right? If they know what the secrets of God are, they can write a book. They can keep their position of authority. Come to me, I will tell you the secrets of God. Oh, come to me, buy my book. Seven ways to have the God-centered life that you've always wanted because I know the secret, as they say. Thank God that he did not reveal Christ to the kings and to the prophets because they would have used that message to lord it over the people. I was at the Synod Assembly this last week. I'm glad God did not give the secrets simply to the leaders of the church. It's terrible. That's next week's message or something. I don't know. I always take a shower after attending a Synod Assembly. I just go, I feel so dirty because it's just a terrible, terrible business that they do. Sorry. I'm, I, I'm enough, enough about that. Who did God reveal this truth to? To Mary. 
a young girl, to the shepherds out in the field, to fishermen, to tax collectors, to prostitutes, to sinners like you and me. That's who God revealed the truth to, so that no group could claim him, but all groups would have access to him. That's what God was doing. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. The kings want it. The prophets want it. You get it. What you want to see is Jesus. God's plan of salvation is manifest right in front of your face, and it's Jesus. That's what the whole scripture has been pointing to. No wonder they had great joy. Whereas the Apostle Paul said, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no man, one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts Boast in the Lord. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Kings want it, prophets want it, but you get to see it. Now there's a problem for the disciples in seeing what kings and prophets want to see. The problem is now that they know what Scripture's about, <laughs> now that they know God's plan is Jesus, they now have to be witnesses of this truth. They have to go out before kings and before prophets and synod assemblies and stand up and preach and share the gospel. They have to go to, to neighbors and they have to go to their workplaces and share this message. And that's tragic. <laughs> I was trying to tie it in somewhere with the phone, but I couldn't go there. How are these simple people going to do that? The world rejected Jesus. These disciples are marked men. The world's going to reject them. How in the world can they be witnesses to Christ? Well, here comes the second reason for joy. And that is Jesus has promised power from on high. Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit to empower their witness. Listen to verses 46 through 49. Jesus told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In other words, someone needs to share this message. I've just revealed it to you. Guess who's going to be sharing the message? <laughs> you are. But you're not going to do it on your own strength. You're going to do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to talk more next Sunday because that's Pentecost. So for you who like to dress in red, wear red next week, and we're going to celebrate Pentecost. But I do want to share a story with you. When I was 19, I knew I wanted to be a pastor. God had worked in my life. I realized... Um, that I wanted to be a pastor. So my pastor said, why don't you teach a Bible study? And I thought, okay, I'll do the high school Bible study. 
We only had about 10, 15 kids. I was 19, and I thought, okay, I'm going to be a pastor, so our 10 and 15 after a couple weeks will be 500. It'll be great, no problem. <laughs> I had my lesson planned. It was all ready to go. And then I had to teach it. I'm close to their age. Of course, they're going to respect me because I'm one of their own peers. I think 90-year-olds should teach high schoolers, and high schoolers should maybe teach 80-year-olds. I don't know how that works, but they did not listen to anything I said. We read the Bible passage, and I saw racers flying over each other's heads and paper clips being flicked at each other, and it was terrible. It was so terrible of a Bible study. After they all left, I went to the fellowship hall, because I had a key now, you know, I'm an important person, I had a key. And I wept like a baby. And I said, God, how in the world can I ever be a pastor if I can't even do a simple Bible study to these 15 high schoolers? God, I can't do it. How am I going to do it? At home, I went, that night I went home, and I, I think I sobbed a few times. It was, it was really horrific. The next day, I was at a high school event for um, a fundraiser for football. It was a Saturday. And one of the moms came up to me and said, I want to thank you for last night. My son had a great time at the Bible study. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, right. He's the one throwing the erasers. He was the worst of all of them. And then she said, I was in a very bad spot last night. And my son opened to Romans 5 that spoke on hope and just read the words to me. And God ministered to me last night. Well, I thanked her and I went back to my car and I just said, God, okay, <laughs> I get this. My words were terrible. But your scripture, filled with the Holy Spirit, did its work. Okay, God. It's not about me. You're going to work in spite of me. And that's become the theme of my life. I mean, <laughs> and that's how God works. Luke tells us in chapter 12, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities and church high school groups, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Never be afraid to share your faith. Never. The Holy Spirit will use your fumbling. And, your, you know, he'll use whatever that comes out for his glory. And so go and share the gospel. God does great things. Truly, a good reason to have joy. Yet there's a third reason for joy. And it's the blessing that the disciples received from Jesus. In verses 50 and 51, it says that Jesus raised his hands and blessed them. Now this is important because he's blessed them through the Gospel of Luke. But this is the first time he raises his hand. It's mentioned that his hands are raised to bless them. Now many commentators believe that's because he's ascending to heaven and he's given a benediction. And I think that's probably partially true. 
But there's a deeper truth to it. When Jesus raises his hands, what do those disciples see? The holes, the scars. They see where he was pierced through. And talk about a mighty sermon for those disciples. Talk about a wonderful blessing. Because in those, those holes, they're reminded that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And also in those holes, they're reminded that, that the life on earth is not easy. That the world rejects Jesus and the world re will reject his people. But take heart. Christ has overcome the world. We will overcome the world. And yet there is still one more truth to what these hands proclaim. That our God was willing to suffer in the flesh as humans, as a human, as a man. He was willing to suffer in the flesh, be killed for us. No wonder the writer of Hebrews said, we have a high priest who can sympathize in our weakness. Christ can sympathize in our pain. Christ can sympathize in our suffering because he suffered for each of us. And so the writer of Hebrews say, approach the throne with confidence. We have a high priest, Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. As the hymn, Endless Ranks of Angels says, verse 2, death destroying, life restoring, proven equal to our need, now for us, now for us before the Father, Christ as our brother intercede. Flesh that for our world was wounded, living for the wounded plead. In other words, Christ is there at the right hand of the Father who can sympathize with our weakness, interceding on our behalf, on your behalf, to the Father. And so he raises hands and blesses them. Oh, the joy. And yet there's still more. A final reason for joy was the breaking of the bread. Earlier in the passage, we read that they had eaten fish and bread with Jesus. And as they did, Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And this continues in the book of Acts, as you read, where they, they have joy as the bread is broken. They, they eat together. In fact, chapter 2 of Acts says, every day they continue to meet together in temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Joy from the breaking of the bread. Why? Because they're not alone. Christ, who's at the right hand of the Father, enters into the bread, enters into the wine for us, for the forgiveness of sins. We are not abandoned by Christ. We have the Holy Spirit to empower us, but we also have Christ himself that comes down in this meal for you, for the forgiveness of sin. And so now back to our original question. How could the disciples have joy knowing that Jesus was ascending to heaven? Our answer is, how could they not? For they were seeing what kings longed to see. They were seeing God's plan of salvation in front of their very eyes. Even more, they are now part of God's salvation as they were to preach the gospel in Christ's name to the ends of the earth. Could they do it on their own strength? No. 
but the Holy Spirit would be given to them to empower them, to power their witness. They were also promised, or they were also given, a benediction. Nail-pierced hands, God blessing them with all the blessings that would come from that. And then Jesus would also promise to be with them in the breaking of bread to comfort them in their struggle. Reformation on this day, when we celebrate the ascension of our Lord, have joy. Not because Jesus has promised an easy go of things, because he hasn't. Rather have joy because you have the same scriptures that the apostles had. And in your baptisms, you have the same Holy Spirit that the disciples had. And in the Lord's Supper, you have the same Jesus that the early church had for you, for the forgiveness of sin. You are part of God's salvation. Spread the news and have great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.